Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source, live from Tel Aviv tonight, where President Biden just delivered a primetime address to the nation, only his second ever from the Oval Office, 24 hours after he left here in Tel Aviv and returned to Washington. He made a direct appeal to the American people and to the U.S. Congress for aid both here in Israel but also in Ukraine, saying that their success, and I'm quoting him now, is vital for America's national security. When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. The president said that American leadership is, quote, what holds the world together, and he warned that if the U.S. doesn't act here, he says conflict and chaos could, quote, spread to other parts of the world. That's why he says tomorrow he is sending an urgent budget request to Congress for both aid to Israel and Ukraine and for other national security needs, as he repeated one of the messages that he delivered here while on the ground in Israel just 24 hours ago. When I was in Israel yesterday, I uh, said that when America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I cautioned the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. And here in America, let us not forget who we are. We reject all forms, all forms of hate, whether against Muslim, Jews, or anyone. That's what great nations do. And we are a great nation. Now, as a former White House reporter who covered President Biden watching this speech, I think one thing that's important to point out is how rare you see the president in this setting, speaking from the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, straight to camera and straight to the American people. He's only done it two times since he has ever taken office. And tonight he was talking about two very different wars, what's happening in Ukraine and what is happening here in Israel, two very different entities. But he drew a through line from Hamas, the militant group, of course, in Gaza, and President Putin in Russia. In this speech, the president sought to really try to lay out the stakes for the United States. He said he understands why people are asking questions. Why is U.S. aid and U.S. money going to Ukraine? Why is it going to Israel? He talked about why it's important and how it actually does matter to America's national security and the argument that he made. Of course, a lot of that speech was informed by the visit that the president had here just 24 hours ago when he was sitting in with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, giving a speech after that, talking about why this is so important. With me now to analyze that speech and the big takeaways from it is Israeli journalist Nadav Eyal. He's also the book, author of the book Revolt and joins me now. Obviously, everyone in Israel has been paying very close attention to what President Biden has been saying, his visit yesterday, his first speech after the October 7th attack. How do you think what, what was just said will register with people tonight? Well, for Israel, this is a commitment for its security. People need to understand that what Israel's, Israelis lost 
because of this attack is their sense of security and confidence with their own defense forces, both because of this huge intelligence failure, but also because of what happened. We just saw mass murder and ethnic cleansing on our southern border with these communities. In a matter of eight hours, more than 1,400 people murdered. And the fact that the president of the most important power in the world would come to Israel and not only say we're behind you in terms of security, but also have some stardust of empathy to the Israelis is so powerful and moving for Israelis. And that was really important to hear him. Well, and I was reading something you wrote earlier today, and you said, you know, of Biden's visit, that he came here for just a few hours, that the U.S. is sending two aircraft carriers here. You said not only to protect us from our enemies, but to protect us from ourselves, from the mistakes of our leaders and the security establishment, those who have all failed. So essentially you're saying his leadership means so much because of the reflection of the leadership or lack of here in Israel. Yes, I think the Israeli leadership failed us both in terms of intelligence and leading our defense forces, which are so powerful and could have prevented this attack. And they will pay the price. This is the democracy. I'm a journalist. And we're going to make them pay the price for their failures. But we're at war right now. And the fact that President Biden came here was also to make sure that the Israeli government, out of this sense of failure, will not use its force in ways that are not going to be efficient enough. And he made that point in Israel. And I think he made that point in the speech from the White House tonight. He was talking about this support for Israel. It's about $10 billion, we believe, part of it going to the Iron Dome, which we've seen intercepting yeah. rockets here overhead. There are some on the progressive left in the U.S. Congress who, who believe that USAID to Israel should not be unwavering. They've called what's happening in Gaza a genocide. They've called for a ceasefire. What do you think when you hear that from those lawmakers? Well, for me as an Israeli and as someone who admires the power of America and the world, uh, it's, it's just heartbreaking to hear these voices from the U.S. What we have seen in our southern border is for the first time what happens when the Israeli Defense Forces fail for eight hours. For eight hours. And I have just talked with the survival of these massacres. I traveled to their hotels in the southern of Israel to speak with them, to have their testimonies. And I, as a former uh, international correspondent, I've never heard anything like that unless you're talking about Srebrenica, uh, the genocide in Serbia during the Yugoslavian wars, or if you're talking about what Bashar al-Assad did to his people in Syria. This was an attempted genocide in Israel. And if people don't make the distinction between targeted murder and between a military campaign that was ordered to defend Israel, then we have no basis for discussion. And this moral argument is also a legal one. And the U.S. is making it. The U.S. from both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. Nadav Al, thank you for coming on, for sharing just your experiences, but also your reporting as well. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you. For more reaction to President Biden's speech tonight, we have CNN's Pentagon correspondent, Oren Lieberman, also here with me, along with Dan Sinar, who is a foreign policy advisor in the George W. Bush administration and co-wrote the upcoming book, The Genius of Israel, a very timely read at this moment. Dan, I want to start with you because we just saw President Biden delivering this speech after he took something, took this rare step that you, you never see a foreign leader doing, a U.S. president sitting in on a cabinet meeting here in Tel Aviv, a wartime cabinet, of course. 
both then and now he was urging Israel, don't be blinded by your rage. I mean, what do you make of the influence that President Biden has over Israel's Israel's moves here? Well, the U.S. The US government has tremendous influence right now because the United States is the only country in the world right now that Israel can really depend on. I think the president's speech was important. I think his visit to Israel was extremely important. I suspect that the military commanders of Hamas did not expect that within days of their invasion of Israel, the commander in chief of the most powerful military in the world would be visiting Israel, consoling victims, sitting in on the war cabinet, as you said. So I, and in tonight, in tonight's speech, which he didn't do in the last couple of weeks, is he talked about Iran. He talked about holding Iran accountable which I think was important, and Israeli leaders were looking for that. They haven't seen it uh, in the last 10 days, tying this all to Iran. The only part that I found a little disconcerting, Caitlin, was this, this um, lecture, if you will, to Israelis not to be blinded by rage, which I just thought was a little tone deaf, given what Israel has been subjected to in the last few days by a terrorist organization, a barbaric terrorist organization, that really Israel and does not have any territorial dispute with. They pulled out of Gaza in 2005, and they've been just sub subjected to this terror for years. And this was like of, of Nazi-like proportions, as the president himself has said. I think Israel's been pretty disciplined. It's, it's working with the international community. It's working with the United States on the timing of its invasion. So I don't, I don't think this is a country that's blinded by rage. Well, Dan, I mean, just to follow up on that, how do you how do you think the senior Israeli officials, the members of that wartime cabinet, would hear a comment like that from President Biden? I it sounded to me like he was said certain things in this speech tonight that were meant as sort of code to a part of his political base in this country that is not very enthusiastic about the the position he's taken in locking arms with the Israeli government during this moment. So. He's got to make the case for a forward-leaning policy that is basically standing by Israel as it begins what I think is imminent, a ground invasion into Gaza. And again, part of his base doesn't like it, so he's saying some things that I think will appeal to them. And one of them was this, this lecture, if you will, about, about don't, being don't be blinded by rage. So I, I think probably the Israeli leaders are not crazy about it. They don't think it reflects reality, but they recognize, I guess, or they're calculating that he's, he's you know, juggling, balancing a number of equities here. Well, and Oren, Dan mentioned Iran there. You saw Biden was warning about conflict, chaos, this spreading into the Middle East. And uh, of course, as that as he was making those comments, I thought about your reporting of this U.S. Navy destroyer operating in the Middle East, intercepting multiple missiles uh, near the coast of Yemen, of course, questioning where those missiles, what they were targeting. You know, there are already concerns about this escalating. I wonder how much you think this amplifies those already existing concerns. Oh, very much so. Look, for 20 months of war, and we'll use the analogy that President Joe Biden made between the war in Ukraine and the war in Israel, for 20 months, the war in Ukraine has not spilled out of Ukraine's borders, with, with tiny exceptions here and there, a missile that went over the border into Poland, for example. But we're not even 20 days into the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and we're already see, seeing the regional ampli amplification of that. Um, uh, protests at most, uh, most of the U.S. embassies uh, across the region. We saw the U.S.'s Carnia destroyer in the Red Sea intercept three cruise missiles and a number of drones. 
that were launched from Yemen, according to the Pentagon, by Houthi forces and potentially targeting Israel. So you're seeing that spillover. And for the U.S., and certainly for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the linking chain here is Iran. The Houthis in, are, are backed by Iran. Uh, a number of Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq have attacked U.S. forces in the past. We've seen similar attacks over the course of the past 48 hours though the Pentagon hasn't yet attributed that. So you see the concern not only of, of Iran's yeah. proxies here, but, but the possibility of this spreading and perhaps spreading quickly here. Well, and Dan, obviously what everyone is kind of bracing for and waiting for is what this ground invasion that everyone's expecting, which the defense minister here in Israel is previewing essentially, what that's going to look like. And one thing that goes hand in hand with that conversation are the hostages. And something you said recently really stood out to me, which is that you don't think that all of the hostages are under Hamas's uh, control. And a Hamas leader seemed to to confirm that tonight in this interview with The New York Times. I mean, how much does that complicate what negotiating for their release looks like? I mean, what this ground incursion could look like as well? It uh, Look, Qatar is trying to negotiate with Hamas to get apparently some of the hostages out as an intermediary, if, if you will, between the United States government and Hamas, the problem is Palestinian Islamic Jihad apparently has a number of the hostages, so we're told. And who knows what other ragtag kind of sub-militias have some of the hostages. So even if Hamas wanted to negotiate, and it's not clear to me that they do, but even if they did want to negotiate, it's not clear to me that they actually have control of all these hostages. So I think it makes the whole process tragically futile. If if Hamas were serious, or any of the, of the other parties in Gaza that have hostages were serious about negotiating, I think they'd be doing things right now that they haven't been doing. They'd be allowing Red Cross or Red Crescent access They'd be to the hostages to make sure that they're safe. They'd be allowing medical supplies to get in. They're doing none of that, which tells me their intention was never really to negotiate, but to use the hostages as human shields of, sor of sorts and to really, almost like a deterrent against Israel, slow things down, slow the pro process down, make Israel think twice about coming into Gaza. I think Israel's going into Gaza. I think they're going in soon. And tragically, Caitlin, I just, I don't think this hostage crisis is going to get resolved before then. Yeah, so many families waiting on news about those people. Dan Sinor, Oren Lieberman, thank you both for that analysis and that reporting. Thanks. Tonight, you saw President Biden talking about what this means, what could happen next. He also was referencing how he has struck a deal to try to get aid finally into Gaza, as Dan was referencing there. It was supposed to start flowing from Egypt over that Rafah crossing, the only crossing between Gaza and Egypt, in just a matter of hours from now. But we are hearing from sources tonight that it is not likely to be the case. We'll see when that could potentially happen. Anderson Cooper is here right after this. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Today, Jewish families worried about being targeted in school, wearing symbols of their face walking down the street, or going out about their daily lives. 
And I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many others are outraged and hearty, saying to yourselves, here we go again with Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. Just last week, a mother was brutally stabbed. A little boy here in the United States, a little boy who just turned six years old was murdered in their home outside of Chicago. His name was Wadiha, Wadiha, a proud American, a proud Palestinian American family. We can't stand by and stand silent when this happens. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. That was President Biden just a few moments ago in the Oval Office making that emotional plea to Americans to denounce all forms of hate. Part of that primetime address that he delivered to the nation, also making the case for wartime aid to Ukraine and to Israel. CNN's Anderson Cooper is here with me. And, and we just heard from the White House, Anderson, that the president spoke to the uncle and the father of that six-year-old boy who was killed simply, which we know is being investigated as a hate crime now. I mean, it was a really human moment in yeah. this speech where he was talking about, you know, these big picture ideals of democracy and whatnot. I do, and I do think that's something that people here in Israel have seen in President Biden over the last almost two weeks now um, that has really struck them. The sort of, you know, look, whatever your politics are, whatever you may think of, of the president uh, based on, on political beliefs, this is a man who knows pain and knows loss and grief and has walked that lonely road for much of his life. Uh, and he's able in these moments, certainly he did that here in Israel, both in his initial comments and the comments he made here, uh, to kind of touch that, that pain that so many people here are feeling. I mean, there's such that undercurrent of just shock and loss and uh, you know, what he terms the kind of the, that black hole in the, the center of your chest. So I, I think a lot of Israelis I've spoken to were, were surprised that this statesman is sort of talking in such personal terms. That's not something they see here a lot uh, that, that from what they said to me, but, but they really, they liked it. Yeah, and he seemed genuinely touched as he was meeting with the, the survivors, the first responders yesterday. But also in the speech tonight, he talked about the civilians in Gaza and what they're going through and these efforts to get aid in yeah. uh, across the Rafah crossing, which he, he brokered this deal with the Egyptian president on the flight back from Israel yesterday. But we're hearing that right now it's not expected to go in in just a few hours from now like it was expected to. Right. Uh, the Doctors Without Borders is saying a hotel or that a hospital, excuse me, in Gaza is about 24 hours away from running out of fuel. I mean, these are massive concerns, and, and every moment counts for this aid. Yeah, and the deal that, that President Biden talked about on the on Air Force One as he was heading back from Israel was that uh, with uh, LCC was 20 trucks initially as a beginning. See how it goes if the if aid isn't taken by Hamas. Uh, that he, the President Biden wants a steady stream of aid going in. Obviously, Israel has serious concerns about what is the inspection of these trucks, what is coming in, who's actually going to be responsible for inspecting it as the United Nations, who, who is it, and how is it being distributed. One of the concerns among humanitarian officials that we've heard from is if you send 20 trucks in to an area where there's hundreds of thousands of people who are desperate for food and clean drinking water and, and shelter, uh, and they think these are the last and only 20 trucks coming in, there's no telling the chaos that 20 trucks can cause among hundreds of thousands of people. If the message is there's 20 trucks coming today, but there's going to be you know, 50 more tomorrow and 100 the next day, uh, that can be more orderly. But I think there's a great concern about what happens when those trucks cross over, uh, both from 
what happens with Hamas and also what happens with just civilian population who are desperate. Yeah, and 20 trucks is a small drop in the bucket. You're one of the first reporters today. We're here in Tel Aviv, but you went close to the border to one of these kibbutzes that was attacked. And you were one of the first ones actually in to see the aftermath. What did you see? Yeah, the IDF allowed journalists in for the first time. So there were a number of journalists there, Israeli media and others. Um, it, it was extraordinary. I've been asking to go to Niraz. I've been trying to get to Niraz. It's, in a, it's, it's a mile and a half from the Gaza border. So the IDF is very careful uh, on the security situation about who they allow in there. Uh, they have been, they continue to bury bodies. Five bodies were buried today uh, by a, a guy named Ron, who is sort of the caretaker there. Um, and and lives there, you know, it's it's all still there. I mean, the burned out cars, the blood in people's safe rooms, the blood in, you know, mattresses soaked on beds. Uh, it's it is a stunning scene. And it is it was because it's only a mile and a half from Gaza. It was one of the first places hit and a, a huge number about of some 400 people. They believe about 100 as many as 100 people uh, are either dead or missing which wow. is one quarter of the population there. Yeah. Uh, well, I know we'll be seeing more of that tomorrow night. Anderson Cooper, thank you. Also tonight, as we are looking here at this speech from President Biden, we hear that this is a country still deep in mourning. You hear that from every single person that you talk to. It's so quiet here. So many survivors are not only grappling with loss, but still in disbelief that they were able to survive, those who lived, when others around them were killed. That is such the case for a young American survivor. She moved here for what she thought was a better, peaceful life. She'll be here to tell her story right after this. The State Department has evacuated at least 1,500 Americans and their family members from Israel, but a spokesperson has told CNN that many are choosing to stay, including my next guest, Tally Gilberg, who is an American-born dual citizen. Tally lives on a kibbutz, a community of nearly 600 people, less than half a mile from Gaza. It's so close that one of Gaza's crossings is actually named for this kibbutz that she lived in. It's so close that she was no stranger to rocket fire. But on October 7th, she knew that what she was hearing was different, was not what she was used to. She shot this video outside of her window as she spent hours sheltering from Hamas. The soldiers you see here, that's the IDF. Despite the fear, the trauma, and the uncertainty, Tally plans to stay in her, her, to stay in her adopted country as a survivor even after that attack. And she joins me now, and I'm so grateful that you're here. And I just, you grew up in New Jersey, you moved here, and you were assigned to this kibbutz, but even after your service, you, you loved it so much that you decided to stay there. But I was watching your video that you posted from the day of this attack, and I want our viewers to just listen, because you can hear the gunfire in the background of it. What was going through your mind as you sat there for so long? Um, uncertainty, fear. Uh, I was very numb. I still am numb. Majority of the country is still numb. We we are living hour to hour, not day by day. We we don't know what the next hour is going to bring. What terrible news we will hear. There's still hundreds of people missing. Um, and people are like are constantly getting notifications that their loved one is dead or 
is still trapped in Gaza or is dead in Gaza. Um, what was going through my head for the most part was I want to make it out of here alive. We also like didn't know what was happening when it was happening. Not only afterwards when I got out of the kibbutz did I really look at the media. When I felt safe to look at the media, I actually look at the media and was shocked at what had happened during the day. I mean, you must have been so scared to be in there by yourself alone. You're hearing what you know is not, you know what's happening is not normal, but, but you can't leave, you can't go and find out what's going on around you. Um, yeah, there was, when, at the very beginning, around maybe 7.38, I got a phone call from someone on the kibbutz that knows I live alone and knows that his son lives across the hall or like across the hall from me. Uh, and he said for me to go be with him because he had a gun. And that's like, was when I really understood like the severity of this situation. I heard the gunshots. I was trying not to think exactly what was happening or that it was Hamas until not only when I received a video from a friend here in Tel Aviv that Hamas was in Stero, which is the city close to me, mm -hmm. did I really understand like that this is not normal and that like it is better to be with someone that has a gun? Yeah, well, and each kibbutz has its security and I know that everyone in your kibbutz survived except one person who was a member of that security team, but also a friend of yours, Amir Naeem. Yeah. Can you just tell me about him? So Amir's family is one of the big families on our kibbutz. Everyone knows them. They are constantly taking in lone soldiers like myself. Um, and when I moved to the kibbutz in 2019, they took in one of my really good friends. So Amir was like a brother to him. So I knew Amir through, the, through my friends, but also Amir was a counselor to a group of lone soldiers in 2021 and those fellow Americans became my friends as well. And so I just got even more closer to Amir and he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And he had just gotten married and his wife is pregnant, I know. Yeah, he, they celebrated their first year anniversary, like first anniversary a few days before this happened. Um, and she's pregnant. Uh, and she only like told the public that after this all happened, they were like not ready to tell the public um, it's a very sad situation. We had his funeral the other day. Um, Did you go? Yeah, everyone is very distraught. Uh, I saw people I had never seen cry before cry and bawl their eyes out. Um, it was very, it was an army like funeral, so there was gunshots there, and that was very hard for all of us. No one. To hear that, it must have been very triggering. Very triggering to everyone there. Um, maybe the country is going to change protocol based on this event. You you talked about how you moved to this kibbutz and you you said it was one of your your favorite places that you felt peaceful there. I mean, how has this shattered your sense of security? Um, I. I still think that once I'm able to go back, I will feel secure there again because it's my happy place. It's where I've built my home in Israel. Um, a friend actually asked me this, if I would go back to live there. Um, and I said I'd go back if I can tomorrow. Hmm. Um, it's my home. It's the, the apartment, 
my quiet corner of the world that I've made for myself, or it used to be the quiet corner of the world. Sometimes it wouldn't be so quiet with rockets. But we, we live in peace there. The people on my kibbutz, they, when the border was open, they would go to Gaza. They were friends with people in Gaza. I'm, I'm used to seeing Gazans come into Israel all the time to work. Like, I live right next to the crossing, and that's the crossing where people come for, for like, me medical care, for work. Yeah. So for me, we lived in peace and we had, we had like a sense of being together. Um, I had friends on the, on the base there when it was overtaken. Um, my kibbutz is just a miracle that we're still here and it's because of the great security team we have and a mere sacrifice. Uh, there was also some people injured from the kibbutz during the fight. Tali, I'm so sorry for what you've been through, and I'm grateful that you were able to even come and talk about it. I've heard from people who, who during this, have just said, I'm, I marvel at how people can come and talk and speak publicly about something that they've witnessed that was so horrific. So thank you for that, and thank you for talking about Amir as thank well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Tali. And we'll be back in just a moment. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The command will come. That is what the Israeli defense minister told troops today who are gathering near the Gaza border, also saying that they will soon see Gaza not from across the border, but from the inside. So as Israel is signaling that an invasion is close, the question, of course, is what that looks like and what will come next. CNN's Nick Robertson is near the Gaza border. Nick, what have you been seeing tonight? Caitlin, it's not just the defense minister who's giving an indication that troops may be going into Gaza soon. I spoke with a couple of other government ministers. The minister of economy said, look, the, from the political side, we've already given the green light to the military. It's up to the military now when they go in. So the decision's taken. I was also speaking with the agriculture minister who also used to be a head of one of the security services here, fought in Israel's military on many occasions. And he said uh, some interesting things about what Gaza will look like after this military incursion, because that's something everyone's been asking. One of the things he said, look, we know that the defenses, we know that the Gaza border, 67 kilometers, about 50 miles long along that whole fence line, we know that that was a security weak point. We're going to radically change it. He said there will be a big buffer zone, a no-go zone, effectively a kill zone. No one will be allowed in that area. And that will be there to protect and make Israel safer and stop incursions coming out of Gaza. So that's one change. But in terms of the overall security 
security change. And this would be a very big uh, difference from where we're at today. He says that the security in Gaza, the access for the IDF in the future, will be like it is for the IDF in the West Bank at the moment, meaning they can go in and arrest people whenever they want to on their terms. Sometimes it's a firefight, but it is nothing like it is uh, going into Gaza. So what they're talking about is a big force that's going to take a long time to, to take substantial control inside Gaza to completely eradicate, as they say, Hamas from, from, the, from the streets uh, and, and from the community there. So this new future, he said, for Gaza is one where they will need to build a new authority structure there as well. Now, there's no indication of how likely this is to be successful. But this is the first time we've heard from senior government officials about their vision for what it looks like after the incursion right now. Everyone really looking for any indications that the incursion's about to happen. Here from Starot, we've been able to see this evening tank rounds fired in towards Gaza, heavy machine gun flares. We haven't seen that before. And the area it was happening in, if there was to be an incursion, that would be one of the places it would happen. Early days yet, but I think the expectation right now is it's really coming soon, Caitlin. Nick Robertson, thank you for that report. And with me now is, of course, someone who has been very familiar with the Israeli military, the former national security advisor to the prime minister, Major General Yaakov Amidor, who is here tonight. Thank you. You heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu and other Israeli officials warning this is going to be a long war. How long do you think it'll be? I think that there will be basically two stages. The first one, very intensive. It's uh, to, to go into the area slowly and to, 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 to be at the end in areas which are important to control the, the area that we suppose uh, to control afterwards. Um, it will be a slow moving of uh, big forces into the urban area to identify where the, the, the enemy uh, centers of command and, and gravity are, and it will be separate inside, and then we will uh, be there for a long time few months probably, to clean the area, to go after the Hamas members, each uh, headquarters that they have, each office that they have, to identify the underground tunnels and to Which try... Which quite complex. Do you think they'll get that intelligence on where the headquarters and whatnot are once they're across the border, or do you think they have a good sense of that now? I think that all, all the, the, um, the um, headquarters that had been known destroyed by the Air Force, we have to, to collect information and to, to make all the, the uh, investigation of people inside and slowly, slowly to identify the network of the, uh, which was prepared by the, by the Hamas and then to destroy it slowly and surely and to have more information through the operation. It is something which will emerge through the operation. Not everything is known now. Okay, so you think they'll learn a lot during the operation? Yes. But with this, it's clear what Israel's intent here. They say they want to eradicate Hamas's capabilities, their military capabilities. But if Israel is successful in that, who is in charge of Gaza? Do you, does Netan Prime Minister Netanyahu have a plan for that? There, there are three options. One, that Israel will remain there. I think it will be a mistake. Uh, we don't want the responsibility for two million people with all the ramification connected to that. Um, 
I think that the, the, for the Palestinians, the best is if the PA will take responsibility, something that they lost because Hamas pushed all the uh, members of Fatah out of uh, Gaza, killed them. Yeah, they basically them. have no power. Yes, but if they come after us, after we killed Hamas, that will be much easier for them. And of course, from the, from the outside, we can help. But this is something that m- might not happen because the PA doesn't want to take the responsibility as well. So at the end, I think that Israel will have to disconnect itself from the Gaza Strip. We don't have a responsibility for the civilians. We have only one responsibility, is to destroy any attempt by the, anyone inside to, re- to rebuild military capability. We, we don't have, we are out of Gaza Strip, people don't remember, more than 15 years. We don't have any responsibility for any in area we, which we are not in. We don't have responsibility. We are not conquering the, the, the Gaza Strip. But there's a we sense of out. responsibility in the sense of the civilians who live there. It's not their why fault it is ours. what Hamas did. Why, why it is well, our responsibility? Well, you go in and you conduct this massive bombing campaign. You're telling them to, to leave because, of course, what, they're going to go in and do that. It would Civilians would get killed even if it's inadvertent. Yeah during that? I mean, I think people would say that there is a sense of responsibility for what happens to them next if you topple their if we stay leadership. There, if we stay there, we have responsibility. But if you are going back to the border and what we do is only to take care for, the, um, for any attempt to build new military capability inside, we don't have... But what if there's a vacuum created? Okay, so you, you feel you have no responsibility you go in, you eradicate Hamas, you leave, but there's no leadership. I mean, we've seen that happen time and time again, where a vacuum is created and another terrorist organization yes, but, emerges. Well, you, you behave, the two million Palestinians, they're like babies. They have responsibility for themselves. Well, it most is of, their, half of them are under 18 years it, old. It, is, it, is their, it is their responsibility to build something which will be good for them and good for us, and, or good for them at least. I mean, we cannot be responsible for two million Palestinians that do not know how to build something for themselves. It's not our responsibility, it's their responsibility. We don't have responsibility for all the problems that occur in Syria or somewhere else. Wait, I have a lot of I questions mean, for you on what this could look like, and I want to have you back on that. But there's something that I was just having that conversation with Tally, who survived the attack on her kibbutz. I was watching Anderson Cooper's interview earlier with the sisters of a medic who, who could have left, but she stayed and she was killed in her kibbutz. And her sister shared her last messages with Anderson. And one of them was, where is the military? Where is the military? You served for 36 years in the military. Where was the military on that day? I think that it was a huge failure of the system, uh, including the intelligence and the operational side. But this is something that we will investigate and we'll find the solutions high to prevent it in the future after the war. Now we are focusing on the war. We, all our energy, all our thoughts, all our time is about how to win the war and all your questions about the day after. The minute after the war, the hour after the war, investigation will take part in Israel. It's a democracy. The people will not let the army and the decision makers not to be under investigation. Mm-hmm. And we will find what went wrong. And many things went wrong. No question about it. And, but that will have to wait after the war because the war itself is very problematic, very challenging. It is not going to be easy and we should not waste any gram of, of, of any time or energy 
about something which is not connected to the, to the um, need to win the war. And after that, everything is open. Everything yeah. I mean. Well, I mean, they're still in leadership, so I think people would say it is connected. But we have much more to discuss. Thank you for coming on tonight. And Thank for you for your time uh, the opportunity. Yeah, at this very early hour here in Tel Aviv. Thank yes. you, General. And we'll be back in just a moment. The House is now expected to hold its third vote for House Speaker at 10 a.m. tomorrow. And we have just learned a few moments ago that Congressman Jim Jordan, who has not yet dropped out of this despite not having the votes, is going to hold a press conference at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. He has been pledging to stay in the race. He has had two failed votes this week. Melanie Zanona back on Capitol Hill joins me now. Melanie, what are we expecting to hear from Jim Jordan at 8 a.m. tomorrow? Well, Jordan is going to try to rally support for his flailing speakership bid. He was meeting with a number of those key holdouts tonight, trying to win over his opposition. But we're hearing it is not going over very well for Jim Jordan. So the big picture right now, Caitlin, is that the Republican Party is frankly a mess. Their nominee for speaker, which is Jim Jordan, cannot get the votes he needs, but refuses to drop out of the race, preventing other candidates from getting in. There was also a heated closed-door meeting earlier today that devolved into yelling and screaming. Also, one member, Nancy Mace, just blocked, got blocked, got blocked, I should say, by another member on Twitter because they were fighting. They also are starting to have personal threats. So there are concerns for member safeties for those Republicans who voted against Jim Jordan. So really, the House is in chaos right now with no speaker and no end in sight. Caitlin. And a lot of uh, cursing, it appears. Melanie Zanona, we'll see what's said tomorrow. Maybe some expletives there. Thank you. We'll have more from the ground here in Israel right after this quick break. Before we go tonight, just a quick note on those who have been so incredibly amazing to share their stories with us. People like Tally and others who have told us what it was like to live in that horrific day. And it's something that's had an impact on all of you. We've heard so many things, so much feedback from people on the impact of these personal stories and people asking how they can help, what they can do. CNN's Impact Your World team has updated its list of organizations that are vetted, that are safe to donate to. And if you want to do so tonight, you can go to CNN.com impact, or you can just text the word relief to 707070. It's a safe way to donate in a way that so many people have asked about. I want to thank you so much for joining us as we are live here in Tel Aviv. We'll be back here tomorrow night with more important stories on the ground and reporting. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.